Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. Now today's episode is going to be a little unique in the fact that it centers around an issue that can be a little decisive for people. I don't like to do disclaimers because I assume that most people listening to true crime podcasts are adults and saying too much here will ruin the format of the episode, but just know that if you are sensitive in any way towards matters with the LBGQT plus community, this episode may be difficult for you to listen to. That being said, if you haven't already done so, check out the previous episodes of True Blue Crime on all podcast platforms. And if you'd like to get updates about the podcast, what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. Finally, if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you are listening to. I appreciate it as it helps expand the listenership, and I do enjoy reading the, uh, the glowing reviews of the podcast. Now, without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. On a cold October 6th, in 1998, a 5'2", 21-year-old man named Matthew Shepard walked into the Fireside Bar in Laramie, Wyoming. Laramie is a town in southeast Wyoming, close to its border with Colorado, and although its town of roughly 3,000 people a day doesn't make it sound like a big town to many of us that live in urban areas, it actually makes it the third largest town in the state of Wyoming behind Casper and Cheyenne. It is home to the University of Wyoming and a few other colleges and is known to be on the more liberal side of things in what is known as the Equality State. That model will sadly be seen as somewhat ironic after this episode. It was karaoke night at the Fireside Bar and with alcohol flowing, local students and regulars were seemingly having a good time. Matthew was approached by two other men that were roughly his age and he got into a truck with them Roughly 18 hours later, a cyclist would bike by what he first thought was a scarecrow hanging from a buck fence on the edge of a field. Soon his curiosity over the scarecrow would turn to horror as he realized he was looking at the badly beaten body of Matthew Shepard, who had been left for dead after being beaten, set on fire, and left in the near freezing cold temperatures. He would die six days later, and the investigation would reveal a crime that would shock the world and open many eyes to the dangers of hate and bigotry. This is Matthew Shepard's story. So who was Matthew Shepard? Matthew Shepard was born on December 1st, 1976 in Casper, Wyoming. He would grow up and attend schools in the Casper area, and despite his friendly nature, he would suffer bullying due to his small stature and his lack of interest in athletics. Shortly after his junior year of high school, his father was hired by Saudi Aramco, which is the Saudi Oil Corporation. Matthew would attend his senior year at the English-speaking American school in Switzerland, an elite boarding school for children of wealthy Americans that are working abroad. While at the school, he studied German and Italian and enjoyed performing in the dramatic arts. After graduation, he returned to America and attended a few colleges before settling on the University of Wyoming to study political science and languages. Matthew was described as being caring and having a passion for equal treatment of all people. 
it was said he was very approachable and was tender-hearted. Matthew loved to travel, but on a school trip to Morocco in 1995, he was beaten and raped, which left him with panic attacks and depression. This would lead to several hospitalizations for Matthew after things got really and after things got really bad, he started having suicidal ideations. It was also reported in several occasions that Matthew got into drugs and may have been HIV positive, which was the driving force behind his suicidal thoughts. Now remember, this is the 1990s, and being HIV positive was an incredibly scary thing to live with. All of that aside, that night at the fireside, fireside bar, he was just looking to enjoy life. So what happened? The two men that got into the truck that night with Matthew were identified as Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson. Both men had experienced rough childhoods in the more rundown parts of Laramie. Henderson never knew his father and claims to have experienced abuse from the revolving door of bad boyfriends who he also witnessed abuse his mother. Aaron McKinney knew his father but hardly ever saw him. He was a long-haul trucker that was never home. His father and mother would get divorced, and while McKinney was a teenager, his mother died from a botched surgery. He was given $100,000 in a malpractice settlement, money that he used to buy cars and drugs, and by 18, he had developed a serious meth habit. McKinney ran out of money from the settlement and started selling meth to make money. He was well known in the meth crowd of the late 90s in Laramie, and in the week leading up to the fatal incident, both Henderson and McKinney had been on a week-long meth binge. For those of you that don't know or haven't watched Breaking Bad, methamphetamine is a widely abused drug that gained popularity throughout the 90s due to the ability of people to make the drug out of cold medicine from just about anywhere. Mobile drug labs cooked the drug inside of RVs, people made it in their homes, and those that were good at it and didn't blow themselves up in the process could make good money for little investment on their money. The drug itself is classified as a CNS stimulant that has been around since 1893. While it does have some medical uses, there are now other drugs with less risk factors, and for that reason there is little to no use of the drug today other than on the illegal market. Users may take the drug for its high, it's a and also its ability to allow users to stay up for days at a time. This drug was extremely popular for many occupations that required people to stay alert. It was commonly abused by long-haul truckers, and in some places of the world it was given to their military troops in order to keep them awake for days at a time. It is also used as a party drug as it's got an increased effect on sexual arousal. Methamphetamine users that are actively using the drug or coming down from a binge can experience many side effects to include rapid mood swings, paranoia, and violent behavior. When McKinney and Henderson met with Matthew in the Fireside Lodge, it's reported that they had just failed on their plans to rob a fellow meth dealer of $10,000 worth of meth. Coming off their binge and looking for quick cash to score more drugs, they saw Matthew and decided that a well-dressed man in a Laramie bar would make an easy target. Now remember, Matthew was also only 5'2 and weighed roughly 102 pounds. Matthew was friendly and got along well with others and likely would have been happy to chat with the two men and accept their invite to hang out. Now this is where two paths of the same story diverge. There's a book out there, and I'll talk about it more later, but 
It's the work of an investigative journalist who claims to have conducted hundreds of interviews with those close to the case and has published his theory about what happened that night. Now, I vacillated between sharing his version of events and the more washed-down version of events and ultimately decided that this case is not about what led Matthew to get into the truck. It's about what happened to him after he got in that truck and why it happened. So for now, I'm going to focus on just the actions reported to have happened in the truck and the aftermath of this horrible crime. So why did this happen? I've left out a key part of the story until now and I did that on purpose. It's because Matthew believed in treating everyone equally, so his life story should be shared just the same way as any other person's. I've never referenced someone's sexual preferences when I've described them before, especially when it's not germane to how we ended up at this point in the story. However, sadly, it is going to be a major factor in how this story ends, so it's, it's time for me to say that Matthew identified as being gay. Being gay in the 90s was not the same as being gay now. While we still have room to grow and bigotry to fight, it was much harder for the LBGQT plus community members 30 plus years ago, and Matthew grew up and returned to cowboy country. While it's true that Laramie is one of the more liberal cities in Wyoming, this is 25 years ago, and this story takes place in an area of the country where masculinity is measured by whether you can last 8 seconds on the back of a pissed off 1500 pound bull. The Fireside Lounge was known to be gay-friendly, so Matthew would have felt more at ease and likely let his guard down a little. It is believed that McKinney and Henderson invited Matthew to hang out with them under the guise that they were also gay and could just go find somewhere to drink and have a good time. Here again, we arrive at stories that Matthew and McKinney knew each other and McKinney himself had bisexual tendencies. While if this is true, it changes some of the reasons Matthew got into the truck that night, it doesn't change was about to happen to him next. According to McKinney and Henderson, their plan all along was to rob Matthew as they believed he had a lot of cash. Whether this is because of his nice clothes or whether it's because they had prior knowledge of Matthew by hanging out with him is irrelevant. What we do know is they were coming down from a meth binge and they needed their next fix. We know from the trial that what happens next, according to McKinney, is that Matthew would place his hand on McKinney's leg and knee in a sexual manner. McKinney would later claim that this enraged him, and although he was already planning on robbing Matthew at, at gunpoint, he is sent into a rage as a result of Matthew's advances. McKinney had recently acquired a 357 Magnum handgun during a drug deal, and he planned on pulling it on Matthew to commit the robbery. But now, after being touched by Matthew, he instead hit him with the gun. He demanded Matthew give him his wallet, and depending on which report you read, he, Matthew either had 20 or $30 in cash in his wallet. Matthew would give McKinney the wallet, but McKinney continued to beat Matthew with the gun. He would, McKinney would later be asked why he continued to beat Matthew if he had gotten the money already, and McKinney would blame the meth for his violent outburst. So again, this is where the two stories diverge. Some say the continued beating and what is going on, or what is going to happen, is the result of a pure meth-fueled rage. But many more believe it was Matthew's sexual orientation that triggered the initial and prolonged violence against him. Honestly, I think it's possible that it's both. 
Even if the reported stories about McKinney's sexual orientation is true, this is still the 90s in Wyoming, and Matthew coming onto McKinney in front of Henderson may have triggered McKinney into some type of misguided defensive masculinity. We have to understand that in the 90s, many things that we would see as unacceptable by today's standards were common practice in the 90s. Gays were not allowed to marry each other, they were not allowed to openly serve in the military, and oftentimes anyone who identified themselves as gay was looked down upon by others around them. So it's highly likely that if Henderson was not aware that McKinney had bisexual tendencies, that Matthew, who had been drinking at this point, may have inadvertently outed McKinney in front of Henderson and this may have sent McKinney into, into this rage. However, it's also possible that the math fueled what would have otherwise been some form of simple argument or deflection into this violent attack. But regardless, what happens next is not disputed. McKinney orders Henderson to drive to a secluded location. There they get the now injured and dazed Matthew out of the truck and haul him to a buck fence just off the road. A buck fence is an A-frame type fence in which the fence looks like a triangle with the railing of the fence resting where the two angled posts cross. It's useful for uneven or rocky grounds and does not require the posts to be dug into the ground so they are cheap, easy to build, and even mobile if need be. Originally, McKinney had told Henderson they were just driving to a secluded spot so they could dump Matthew off and have time to get away before he reported anything. But once Matthew is against the fence, McKinney orders Henderson to get some rope out of the truck. Henderson did this and ties Matthew to the fence, and McKinney continues to beat Matthew. Henderson would later say he tried to stop McKinney, but he himself was struck against across the face by McKinney, so Henderson retreated back to the truck. Henderson would later tell the show 2020 that he believes the worst of the attack occurred while he was back in the truck. It is also at this time McKinney was reported to have set Matthew on fire. The suspects then left, having taken Matthew's shoes, wallet, with his ID and credit cards, and the cash, and left Matthew tied to the buck fence. Before I get into what happens next, this is where I believe this case no longer had anything to do with any connection between Matthew and McKinney and was purely fueled by hate. McKinney's girlfriend would later testify that he was not under the influence of drugs or alcohol when she, sh when she saw him shortly after the incident, and he was acting rational with her and thinking of ways that she could provide an alibi. So to me, this does not jive with someone who just committed a psychosis-induced violent attack. While many argue against this being a hate-fueled attack, I question the ferocity of the crime. McKinney clearly wanted to rob Matthew, and he had already done that. He wanted to drop him off in a secluded location, and he had done that. So the violence that followed doesn't fit the narrative of McKinney's intentions. Even if the plan was to eliminate Matthew as a witness to the crime, McKinney ended up leaving Matthew alive on that fence. Now, we don't know whether or not he knew that he had left Matthew alive on the fence, but the evidence points that McKinney took out a lot of anger and rage on Matthew and other than the drugs, no one really has a reason for this. This is why I can understand that why there is possibly more to the backstory of Matthew McKinney that does not change the actions that occurred that night. 
McKinney struck Matthew on the head at least 18 times, kicked him in the crotch, and lit him on fire. To me, that is behavior that is indicative of someone who saw Matthew as something other than human. We as humans are not wired to treat each other that way unless we are fueled by hate and malice. So I will stand by the fact that the attack on Matthew was not a drug deal gone wrong. I believe there was hate behind the attack, and Matthew, described as being friendly to all and the size of a 12 or 13 year old kid, was an easy target for that hate. So what happened next to Matthew? A cyclist out for a ride finds the badly beaten and near death Matthew still tied to the fence. At this point he has slipped into a coma and is unresponsive. Police are called and Matthew is initially taken to a lower level hospital, but is eventually transferred to a trauma hospital in Fort Collins, Colorado. In what would be a fatal blow, one of the strikes to his head had severely damaged his brainstem and his body was failing to regulate itself. The damage was so severe that doctors could not even risk operating on it. He would never again regain consciousness and died six days after the attack. After leaving Matthew tied to the fence, Henderson and McKinney had Matthew's wallet and had planned to go to his address and take whatever they could of value from there. But after returning to town, McKinney ended up picking a fight with two men. Now these men would both be Hispanic, and while there was no reported racial slurs or anything thrown at them, both of the victims of this attack would later say they were attacked for no reason, and I would surmise that it's possible they were attacked just because they were Hispanic. Which again leads credence to the idea that McKinney and Henderson held hate-filled views to those that weren't like them. Now during this fight, one of the victims and McKinney would both suffer head wounds and a witness to this fight would call the police. When the police arrived, McKinney escaped but ditched the bloody gun in his truck, which police located the truck and seized the gun as evidence. Henderson was arrested for his part in the altercation but because Matthew had not been found yet, the police were unaware that they had attacked Matthew. McKinney would actually go to the same hospital that Matthew was initially rushed to via ambulance, and McKinney would be treated there for a head wound from the fight with the two Hispanic males. Later, he would go to his girlfriend's residence and ask her to hide Matthew's bloody shoes and provide an alibi for him if the police interviewed her. Ultimately, enough evidence was gathered and both McKinney and Henderson were arrested for the assault on Matthew while he was still fighting for his life in Fort Collins. As Matthew was alive at this time, both men were initially charged with attempted murder, kidnapping, and aggravated robbery. However, after Matthew passed away, the attempted murder charge was changed to first-degree murder charge, and this brought the death penalty into play. So as we've talked about many times, the death penalty is going to motivate uh, Henderson to plead guilty to murder and kidnapping and testify against McKinney in order to avoid the death penalty. And he was willing to accept a plea deal that came with a sentence of two consecutive life terms. Both McKinney and Henderson's girlfriends would be charged with accessories after the fact and McKinney's girlfriend would tell police that she had been told by McKinney that Matthew was attacked because of how he felt about gays. She would later recant this, saying she hoped this would get sympathy for McKinney at the time, but it backfired. Now, McKinney was put on trial, 
in October of 1999, one year after this horrible event. Henderson would testify that they pretended to be gay to gain Matthew's trust with the idea they were going to rob him for drug money. McKinney's lawyers tried to use a gay panic attack defense, claiming that McKinney was so enraged by Matthew's sexual advances that he panicked and attacked him, but the judge wouldn't allow the defense. So they then switched to a defense of that it was just a robbery gone wrong and McKinney didn't, didn't intend to kill Matthew. In a somewhat shocking decision, the jury found McKinney not guilty of first-degree murder, but guilty of felony murder. As we've talked about before, felony murder is a murder that occurs during the course of another felony. He still faced the death penalty, but in a deal agreed upon by Matthew's family, McKinney would be sentenced to two consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. So there's been a lot of uh, fallout from the murder in regards to media coverage and changes in this country after the murder. Here's where I'm going to talk about this book. The book is called The Book of Matt, Hidden Truths About the Murder of Matthew Shepard, and it was written by Stephen Jimenez, who also produced the 2004-2020 segment on Matthew Shepard's murder. Now, in this book, Jimenez interviews a lot of people close to this case, and this includes the girlfriends of Henderson and McKinney. I believe he interviewed both prisoners as well, or at least used information from interviews with these prisoners, and interviewed other people around town. And central to the case was a limo driver that stated that he would often drive McKinney and Shepard with other people around uh, the town, and that he was he believed that McKinney was bisexual and has possibly be involved romantically with Shepard. So there was a lot of accusations that came out of this, and central to his argument in this book is that the killing of Ma- of Matthew was not a result of him being gay. It was just a result of a meth deal gone wrong, and that Matthew was involved in the meth life of Laramie, Wyoming, and that something had gone wrong, and he was killed as a result of it. Now, I haven't read the book, so I'm going to openly admit that this is my take on the whole thing, but I feel that one of the issues with this book is the time in which it came out. If we look back on when this crime occurred in the late 90s, I've already mentioned that this was a time period that was not very friendly to anybody who was gay. Now, some areas of the country were more friendly than others, but we're talking about Laramie, Wyoming, and I did read in some places that that Laramie was more accepting of gays than, say, other parts of Wyoming, but I just think as a whole, if we look back on the things I mentioned before, the fact that gay people couldn't get married and they couldn't serve openly in the military, if you can imagine having to hide your entire sexual orientation just so that you can serve this country, that's where the, the nation was at as a whole. So. When McKinney's girlfriend talks about how in 1998 she's telling investigators that McKinney did this because because Matthew was gay, and then she claims that later on she claims she only said that because she thought that that would get Matthew some sympathy from the jury. I mean, I think that goes pretty far to tell you where people or how people viewed gays back in the, the late 90s, that it could be a defense basically saying yeah, he did this, but he did it because the guy was gay. So 
he shouldn't get as much of a punishment. Now, if you fast forward roughly 15 years to when this book comes out, I think there's been a, a reversal in the culture that now has, thankfully, gays are being more accepted, and so it would not be an appropriate defense. However, drugs and drug users are getting more sympathy, I think, than they did back on, this is the 90s, this is the war on drugs. So it actually was less beneficial to blame the drugs back in the 90s because the public perception of drugs and drug users were different then. So we've completely flipped to the point that now it's acceptable to blame the drugs because that garners sympathy, but blaming Matthew for the death because he's gay is basically the opposite now. So despite the fact that this guy has done all this research and talked to all these people and has formulated this opinion on of his own stating that Matthew Shepard's death is, is meth related, I don't know that the the real truth is out there. Now this is gonna upset a lot of people in the in the gay community that because Matthew Shepard was somewhat of a poster boy, I shouldn't say somewhat, he was a poster boy for anti-gay violence, and rightfully so, because this is a young man that should have been able to just live his life and be happy, and he's no longer with us, and I believe him being gay had a part to do with it. And this book kind of tears down at least that poster or that statue or whatever you want or whatever you want to call it of Matthew being a victim of this of this um, hate crime and I argue that that even if it's true even if somehow we could get the 100% honest truth out of Henderson and McKinney about why they did what they did that night to Matthew Shepard and let's just say that if we're able to do that the, the, the truth presents itself without any argument that Matthew was not targeted for being gay. It was completely done under a drug deal. That doesn't change the fact that there were, and I'm not even going to put a number on it because I don't know a number, but a vast number of people of the LBGQT plus community back in the late 90s that were victims of violence and and discrimination and persecution. So even if this isn't, even if this somehow didn't turn out to be the case that everybody thought it was, it doesn't erase the fact that changes need to be made or needed to be made. And I think there was, there were a few members of the community that stated that they were okay with the book coming out because even if Matthew's death was not a direct cause or was not directly caused by his sexual orientation. Matthew's plight that he faced as a result of the bullying and the persecution that he received from others is believed to have led him down a path that many other members of that community went down during that time period, which was drugs and alcohol, uh, suicidal ideations, all that kind of stuff, because their lifestyle was not accepted. I've said it many times. They couldn't get married. They couldn't serve in the military. Uh, they, they were looked down upon in, during this time period. 
And if you're going to live your whole life not being able to be who you actually are and not being able to be accepted for that, any of those side effects of society's viewpoint at that time, that's potentially what led Matthew down this path that eventually resulted in him being murdered. Had society been more accepting at the time, maybe there's a chance that he doesn't turn to drugs and alcohol and poor decision making if that's what happened and he doesn't doesn't get put in a position where he is going to be robbed and and killed so i think some members of the community put it best by saying no matter what the reason was for matthew's death his death still highlighted the struggle that so many young men in the 1990s and and just just people in general in the community experienced in the 90s and what that meant in terms of their you know the danger they put themselves in with drugs and alcohol and uh, in some cases prostitution and and other things that increased the uh, potential for violence against them so turning from all this negativity there was progress that came out of this we've talked about obviously where we are currently in society and while we do still have room to grow we've come a long way since matthew's death and the thing that shocked me when i researched this case i guess i didn't understand that hate crime legislation at least at a federal level i mean i think state by state it varied but this propelled the attempts to get sexual orientation identified as a hate crime and it took until 2009 for that to happen so as recent as 2009 prior to that on a federal federal level you could not enhance a crime committed against somebody for their sexual orientation to include a hate crime uh, enhancement which to me is just absolutely shocking but it does speak volumes about where we were even 14 years ago, let alone 25 years ago when when Matthew was killed. We have seen progress, we have seen some advancement, we've seen some changes in society, and I do think that Matthew's death did propel some of that. And so it is thanks to the hard work of many and the horrible sacrifices of those like Matthew that we live in a world that is much more accepting of everyone. While we still have work to do, I think Matthew would look upon many of the changes in our world since his death and be happy that more and more we are treating everyone the same despite our differences. I know this was a shorter episode and I try to aim for my episodes to be an hour long. It is sometimes more difficult to hit the hour long mark on older cases and also cases where it's just a single crime that is no way my intention of trying not to cover one crime more than the other it's just that especially with this crime i felt the more i got into the weeds of the matter the more i could potentially take away from the crime itself and the victim in this case and i I really wanted to leave the focus mainly on matthew So to cover the crime for five minutes, but then make a 55-minute episode about the politics around it, I didn't feel was appropriate. So 
with the limited information that I could find in regards to the actual crime, I felt this was the best way to present the crime, present Matthew's life, and discuss it in a way that's, that I felt was appropriate. So I appreciate everyone for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. That's it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a great day. Goodbye.